0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word
1: who we really are, and who we are in Christ are His. We're His children, all of us together. We're all the sheep of His pasture, you know? And and so when we begin to understand that titles matter very little in the bigger picture, we just begin to fulfill and walk out the calling that God's given to us. And it doesn't make a title wrong. It just means let's keep it in perspective, right? But I see too many titles that are no longer in perspective. I think this is one of the ones, and then on top of that, when you add to it with Apostle, I just don't think the office is there anymore. It's just it was fulfilled. These were men who had been with Jesus, seen Jesus, were appointed directly by Jesus. But there are people out there today fulfilling apostolic kinds of ministries in the sense of being missionaries, going out with the Word of God and, and fulfilling that calling of, of, of getting that Word out to the world, you know, and so that still would operate in that regard. Now, also keep in mind, too, we always say the Twelve Disciples, It's not really the 12 disciples, is it? Because it tells us here that Jesus selected from among the disciples the 12 to be apostles. It's the 12 apostles. Jesus had more than 12 disciples. In fact, we know that at Pentecost, that there were how many people right before Pentecost were gathered in the upper room? There were 120, right, that were gathered in the upper room. These were disciples. But it was from among the disciples that Jesus selected these 12 apostles. Now, with all of this said, you know, and even what I just said to you about the apostolic office, we don't want to disregard the fact that Jesus put something in motion with the calling of these 12 that over the centuries has in some functions changed and, and yet it's still being passed down as a calling of sorts from one generation to the next as the work of Christ's church on earth continues until he returns for us. And this is, isn't something to be taken lightly. In fact, Luke here shows us the seriousness of it all because and, and Jesus approaches this decision by doing what? Look again at verses 12 and 13. Now, it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Double emphasis. He went to pray, and he continued all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. Now, think about this for a minute. This is Jesus. This is God in the flesh, And what does he do to select these men for this office? He spends the night praying about who should serve, who he should select to serve in this capacity for the work that he has for them to do here on the earth. And I think there's a lot in this for us to pay attention to as we go through the process in the church universal, in the local body of Christ, of selecting spiritual leaders in the church today. Jesus did not take this lightly and nor should we. And I say that because unfortunately it's, I do think it's taken lightly more and more today. And I, I think it has for a long time. You know, I, I there are, there are churches that boards are simply voted on based on popularity and prestige and seniority right? I mean, I remember the first time I was a board member in a church, it was while I was a young captain in the army station in Georgia. And my spiritual maturity on a scale of one to 10 was probably somewhere around a six at best, you know, and that was on a good day. And I got picked and I got picked in a runoff vote with another guy in the church who had a spirituality level, I'd say of probably a 12 if it was one to 10. And the guy was a great guy, but I got picked. You know why? Because everybody looked at me, Well, he's a captain in the army. He's a great guy. He's really sure you know he's a great guy we know him he's fun to be around i don't know why they thought that because i'm not all that fun all the time but you know i got picked in a runoff vote for that and the proof of the pudding that i was not meant to be in leadership showed itself very quickly because i went to a couple of meetings and i stopped showing up but the pastor couldn't fire me because i had been voted in that's crazy that's crazy and yet churches will do that i've had people here over the years a long time ago not anymore i think we've pretty much gotten the message out on where we stand on this in our congregation but but, you know I remember being challenged on people we put on the board you know because there were people who were here longer than they were, or they were older, and they should be on and I kept saying, "Yeah, but what about their spiritual maturity i don 't mean any insult, but i 'm not looking at how long somebody 's been here versus where are they in their maturity in Christ, where are they in their commitment and their walk to Christ? where are those things and has the Lord told us to pick that person? Have we prayed about it and, and that seems to be a foreign concept in, in many churches today uh, people are appointed oftentimes to lead or be involved in ministry programs just to get them involved, right? We want to get you into leadership so we can get you involved. No. And and people are selected sometimes just because, well, we need somebody to fill the role. You know, I, I learned a long time ago you don't fill roles just because, you know, and if, the, if there's nobody there that's qualified to fill it, then you don't fill it. You just don't do it, and the Lord's well aware of that, and you go where you go. I mean, I remember a long time ago when we were trying to force, you know, I felt this compelling need to have youth ministry. And I want, I love youth. I grew up doing youth ministry, you know, and I wanted a youth leader and we didn't have it. And I was trying, I was at a pastor's prayer meeting and I said something, you know, they were asking for prayer requests. What are you praying for saying, uh, we desperately need, we need a youth leader. And and the pastor looked at me and he said, well, what do you mean you need a youth leader? I said, well, we just don't have one. We've got some youth. He says, Well, sure you got one. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you got a youth leader. He said, are you teaching in a way that the youth can understand what you're saying, that your teens can get it? And I said, well, I hope so. He said, well, if you're not, you need to change that. But if you are, then they've got a youth leader for now. And his point was this. He said, be patient. I said, well, how long do you be patient? He said, well, the Lord already knows what you need. And so he'll provide when the time comes. You don't put somebody unqualified into that because it's just going to be disastrous. He said, so if it's a year, it's a year. If it's 10 years, it's 10 years. The Lord is well aware. Don't fall into the trap of just plugging people into ministry for the sake of plugging them in. Jesus didn't do that, yet he engaged people, yet he had disciples that he sent out, and there's a way we do engage people and to let them do that. But when it comes to, to leadership and this sort of thing, there's much to be considered here from the way Jesus did these things. And so Luke tells us that the 12 were selected, and Mark in his gospel account adds one more important thing that Luke does not include, and I really like this one. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, Mark tells us this. Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, same account, same selecting. He says this, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him (laughs) and that he might send them out to preach. Here's the universal truth. Jesus selects people not simply to serve him. Yeah, he picks them because he wants them to serve him, but he doesn't pick them primarily to serve him. He picks them primarily first and foremost to be with him, to be with him. In fact, you can't be effective for Jesus if you're not first with Jesus, if you're not spending time with Jesus. The power that you need to do the things that he's calling you to do as his servant comes from being with Jesus. You know, even the world recognized this because you remember the disciples after Jesus is gone in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men... They marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. <laughs> and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. I love that passage because it reveals that here's a bunch of bumpkins. This is nobody's. These are Galileans. These are fishermen. And, 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 and now all of a sudden, they're moving with an authority that they didn't even see amongst their own. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. It's spending time with Jesus before you serve, and even as you serve, that enables you to see things in the way that Jesus sees things. And that's what's important. He's not looking for you to jump into it with both barrels blazing, doing things your way, right? You're not Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, right? You're in there to do it his way, but how do you do it his way unless you are spending time with Jesus? seeing what he sees, having his heart beating within your chest and not just trying to drag him to come alongside of you in your venture, in your quest. We need to spend time with Jesus. Spending time with Jesus first will also give you that boldness because when you're moving and you know you're moving in the way he would move, doing things that he would do, seeing things from the perspective he sees, it gives you a completely different boldness. You'll move with a boldness and authority that you wouldn't move with otherwise. So Sadly, I think, again, there's way too many people who jump into service for Jesus who are not spending time with him first, so anxious to get to the doing, which is great. It's great that you want to do. But, but you can't neglect sitting at his feet first. And, and, and sometimes what I see with people is that their service form is lacking because that piece is lacking. I believe that was the difference between Mary and Martha. It's not that, you know, we bash on Martha for, you know, Mary, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Mary, Martha, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha's in the kitchen banging the dishes because nobody's helping her when she was serving them. You know, there's nothing. We bash on Martha for doing that. But the truth is there was nothing wrong with her heart for ministry. She she wanted to serve them. She wanted to serve Jesus. But what became clear is that her focus was not Jesus and her focus was the service. And, and then she got frustrated because there she was all by herself doing this service. And there's Mary being lazy, sitting at Jesus' feet. But she missed the whole point. Mary wasn't going to stay at Jesus' feet. Mary was just at Jesus' feet spending time with him so Jesus could now send her out with his heart, with his vision to do the things that he needed her to do, you see? And I think when we get that, we see that it changes things for us. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him. Mark told us. Well, let's look again at verse 12 here, because he's going to go on. Verse 12, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from there, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Did you ever wonder why he selected 12? Why didn't he pick 14? Why didn't he pick six? You know, why didn't he... Dak, you know, the apostleship, right? Why didn't he do that? Well, the answer's simple, because he was signaling a change between the old covenant and the new covenant. That's what he was doing. And 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 under the Old Covenant, Israel had what? Twelve tribes that were the focus because the nation was the focus. It was twelve tribes because the nation was the focus. But under the New Covenant, people themselves would become the focus. And these twelve disciples represented individual people. It'll be a shift of focus from a national focus and a nation that belonged to God to a focus on individual hearts that will now belong to God. And everything we see in the new covenant makes this awesome transition. You know, under the old covenant, the temple was the focus of spirituality. But under the new covenant, people themselves become the focus because what are we told in the scriptures? That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? People themselves, their hearts of people became the focus. Under the old covenant, the written law, all its rituals, were important to the nation. Were, were the focus spiritually, but under the new covenant, people themselves become the focus of spirituality. As as uh, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians three three, Second Corinthians three three, clearly you are an epistle. You know what an epistle is? It's a letter, right? We talk about the epistles when we study some of the scriptures. You are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. See, the transition is no longer the stone, it's the people. The transition is no longer the temple, it's the people. The transition is no longer the twelve tribes, it's the individuals of whom these twelve disciples will now simply represent as the church gets underway. Look at verse 13. He says, and when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named Apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now, I'm going to take the rest of our time this morning, and we're going to spend some time looking at these different names, because I know we know them, and we read this list, but... I tend to find that we're familiar with some of them, but not all of them, right? We know just the names of some, but there's things to them that we should pay attention to. So let's just kind of go through them. We have Simon, who he says, whom he also named Peter. Now, Jesus had a tendency to do that. The scriptures have a tendency to do that because names reflect something, right? Simon will is Peter, right? And Peter will go to be called what? He'll go on to be called Peter because Peter literally means Rock, right? Actually, it means small stone. Petros, right? He calls him Petros. That's important because when he says upon this rock, right? Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Uh, a lot of people have used that for papal authority, right? That he was saying upon Peter, he's going to build the church. That's not what he said. When he says that in that passage, he uses a different word. He uses Petros, which is, it was just rock, big rock, right? With Peter, it's Petros. It's small rock, it's small stone, but it's still what Jesus made Peter into. Think about who, G- who Peter was. And we're going to see that as we go further in the gospel, But think about who Peter was before Jesus and even in the early days of walking with Jesus versus who he becomes even after Pentecost. You know, to be a man who can stand before the crowd and, and preach the gospel to them and see thousands saved, not because of himself, but because of what he's become. Going from being this proud, arrogant, boastful man, I'll stand with you, Jesus, to seeing this man who's broken and crying in the alley after he denies Jesus and yet gets back up because Jesus had made him into something that could no longer be broken. He made him into that, into that small rock, you see. And then there's Andrew, it says, his brother. We don't know much about Andrew in the Bible. In fact, he's only mentioned 12 times in the Bible, with four of those times being where his name is simply included in the list of apostles whom Jesus appoints. Now, when you think about that, it isn't surprising that he's so unknown, especially when you have a brother like Peter, right, who's always upstaging you, sticking his foot in your, his mouth and jumping in front of everybody and doing all this kind of stuff, you know. And it's also interesting to note when you look at this, this listing of Andrew Andrew, you will always find him identified as Peter's brother, but you'll never find the reverse. Peter's never identified as Andrew's brother. It's always Andrew is Peter's brother, and that's because Peter is always upstaging him. But there's some interesting things to note about him. First of all, his name in the Greek literally means manly, and I take that probably means this guy was not a sissy. Well, he was a fisherman. In that day, fishermen... You couldn't be scrawny because it wasn't a pole going, you know, like this. It was nets and boats and everything else. This is probably a big dude, you know, no question about it. And like his brother Peter, he was a fisherman, too. He was also a, a disciple of John uh, the Baptist. And even though he's not recorded first on this list of disciples, he is uh, first in a number of things. He's the first of the disciples who responded to Jesus's call to follow him. In fact, John tells us that not only was he the first to respond, but he was the first to recognize and to declare Jesus as the Messiah. And he was also the first to lead Peter to Jesus, which is interesting. You know, John describes that account Uh, in in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. It says, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus, he he walked. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following him, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He, that's speaking of Jesus, said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. There's the first. First to go to Peter, first to to declare Jesus to be the Messiah, which is translated to Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is... Is translated a stone. So a lot of firsts in there for this guy. It's also interesting to note that in John's account, in John 21, after Jesus' crucifixion, when Peter and some of the other disciples go back to fishing, you know the account? They go back to fishing, and I would argue if you look at that account, it's, it's a lot of things at play there. There's, they're discouraged. It's Jesus, you know, wasn't supposed to die. It didn't matter how many times he told them that's what he came to do. They still had this messianic view of Jesus. He came as Messiah, which meant he'd be like David. He would establish the throne in the kingdom and and now he's gone and i think there was a part of what what, what do we do now you know it's kind of like when people come to our house and spend you know a week with us and they leave you know this feeling there's you're happy they went but there's this joy. there's this emptiness like uh, what do we do now there was all this activity what do we do now you know and so they all went back to fishing but, but here's the point and when you look at the list of names, because some of the names are mentioned that go back with him, Andrew's not among those names. But yet he was a fisherman. and He was Peter's brother. You would expect he would have been in that group. Now, some speculate that, that it would be strange for him not to have been there. And so, therefore, John does tell us in his account in John 21 about two others but they're unnamed that went with Peter back to fishing. And they say, well, that had to be Andrew, had to be one of them. Well, it's possible. And again, I'm just speculating here, as are the others. But it's also possible that unlike the others, Andrew wasn't in those names. First of all, I would think that if Andrew was with him, he would have been named, not just as others, since it was Peter's brother. But it's also possible that he wasn't there. I mean, consider all the first associated with this guy. You know, I have found that oftentimes people who have a lot of firsts like this with Jesus, where they've really sold themselves out to him so quickly, they've really given themselves over to him, they're not as quick to become despondent about things. They just continue to walk in trust and faith. And it may very well be that he never gave himself over to the same sense of discouragement and disillusionment that the others did, and that he just continued on waiting to see what was coming next with Jesus. Again, just speculation, but could be. But one thing is clear about Andrew, though he isn't mentioned much in the scriptures where he is mentioned, it's clear that he was a solid follower of Jesus Christ. Now, for you little brothers out there, we're the little brothers, right? For you little brothers out there, I just want to say, take a look at this guy, because he's a great example of why you should never underestimate the power of a little brother, And I say that because when you think about this, even though he was always overshadowed by his bigger brother, Peter, you know, Peter in large part became who he was in Christ because his little brother took him to Jesus. You know, never underestimate the power of a little brother. Well, then there's James and John, and these two are brothers. In Mark's gospel account, it makes a footnote about these guys that gives a sense about them, because Mark tells them that Jesus, uh, that he gave them names as well, and uh, the names he gave them was Boanerges, that is, Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Now, I'm, trust me, that's not necessarily a good term right, for Jesus to give you. And Mark tells us that he gave this to him. I like John Corson's comment about it because I think he sums it up well. He says, Jesus called James and John sons uh, sons of thunder, no doubt, because of their violent tempers. Let's call down fire and destroy this city, they said. Luke chapter 9, verse 54. Those guys aren't a part of our group, Lord, but they're preaching in your name. Let's forbid them. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Would you have chosen a couple of guys who wanted to blow people away and burn people up if your message was peace, grace, and love? I don't think so. And yet Jesus does, right? Look, the name is definitely indicative of who these guys are. And as I think about these guys, I I think there are a lot of sons of thunder in the church today, in the body of Christ today, because I hear a lot of people wanting to call down fire and burn up all those dirty little sinners that are ruining everything. In this world, they just need to be taken care of, Lord. We just He needs to come, and they need to be judged, and He's happened. And I'm hearing it more and more. But, but, but we do well to remember Jesus' response to these guys when they wanted to do that, when they wanted to call down fire. Luke chapter nine, verses fifty-five and fifty-six tells us this. Luke chapter nine, verse fifty-five. But He turned and rebuked them and said, "You do not know what manner of spirit you are of." For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. It doesn't say they went to another village with their tail between their legs, but I think they did after that rebuke. Yeah, just like James and John, there, there are sons of thunder in the body of Christ today who, who do not know what manner of spirit are of. and 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 they're operating with the mentality of an Old Testament prophet. And I hear a lot of that today. I see that in a lot of writings, you know, just like the prophets of old, you know, operating with the spirit of an Old Testament prophet rather than operating in the spirit of an ambassador of Christ, which we're called to be. We're not called to be Old Testament prophets. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors of his grace that that he's appointed all of us as believers to be. Now, make no mistake about it. Fire is going to one day fall. There's no question about that. Fire will one day will fall and it will consume this Christ-rejecting world and and the Christ-rejecting men and women in this world. But that day has not come yet. It has not come yet. And we can't operate as though it's were it has come. This will be a time of condemnation and judgment when it comes. But you and I, we're still living and ministering in the era of God's grace. As he extends his hand of salvation to the God-rejecting men and women of this planet right now. And like James and John, we're meant to be the representatives of grace and not the instruments of his judgment. Remember this is, you know, remember this the next time you turn on the news and this, I wrote this note for myself, right? Remember this, Randy, the next time you turn on the news and you get so mad at what people are doing to this country and to this world, remember this. Instead of longing for and asking for the Lord to rain down fire on them, pray instead that He will open their eyes and that He will shed His grace upon them just as He shed it upon you. doesn't mean that we don't warn people of what's coming, but we do it in the spirit of a Noah.